Good morning, everybody. Can you hear me all right? We good? All right. Let's go ahead and open with prayer, and then we'll get to our text this morning. Let's pray. Most merciful Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you that you've called us to yourself in your presence to worship you with your family, that you've redeemed and sanctified us and you continue to bless us and draw us close to yourself. Please be in our hearing and be in my words. May I not be a stumbling block to what you would have us hear this morning. Uh, And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so when I was a kid, single-digit age, elementary age, I remember summertime was always a fun time, and one of those reasons was not only because I got to spend time at friends' houses a little bit more, or I'd have things like basketball camp or football camp, but usually around the middle of the day when my mother would come pick me up, she'd roll up in her green Pontiac Le Mans, and I'd hop in the front seat, and that radio would be up front with those two big knobs and the big silver buttons, And she would almost always come with a particular radio program playing. Sometimes she didn't have it playing, and I would ask for it, and so she got in the habit of just letting it play. And that program had this man with this comforting, velvety smooth voice that would float across WGN 720 AM's airwaves at noon and pull me into these stories about particular people or places. And the way he would weave the story was just so masterful. He would take a little-known fact about something or someone, usually with some key element of the story missing, like the man's full name, and he wouldn't reveal that detail until the very end of the story. And having drawn you into the story and brought you right to the edge where he revealed the identity of the person or what event he was actually describing, you would end up sitting back and saying, wow, I didn't realize that. That's, that's interesting. Do any of you know who I'm talking about? Paul Harvey, Yes. So, I don't know if you agree with me here, but the way he could tell a story was just so captivating. And again, I would always end up sitting back saying, wow, I had no idea. And it was such a well-done way of telling those stories. And you never, or at least I didn't, ever looked at that person or situation the same. It was always in a different light. And as we resume our study of 1 Samuel this morning, I think there's a little bit of a Paul Harvey-like payoff at the end of chapter 22. Because chapter 22 brings to a conclusion Yahweh's prophetic word against Eli and his house from chapter 2. Yahweh fulfills his promised judgment on Eli and his descendants in exactly the way that nameless prophet foretold it would happen. But it's accomplished in an unexpected and kind of tragic turn of events. And it further solidifies the judgment that Yahweh is going to bring on Saul and his house. So before I get to chapter 22 and read our primary text this morning, I actually want to go back and reread that uh, passage from chapter 2 and what the nameless prophet uh, said against Eli's house in judgment. So I know we don't have it on the tables. If you'll just just bear with me, I'm going to go to chapter 2 and uh, pick up in verse 27. And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus says Yahweh, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. 
Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? Therefore, Yahweh, the God of Israel, declares, I promised that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now, Yahweh declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men." And this is that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be assigned to you. Both of them shall die on the same day, and I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind, and I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before me and my anointed forever. All right. So that then helps set up what we'll examine today. So I'm going to read our primary text um, and I'm going to back up just a little bit into chapter 21, verse 10. Again, you don't have it on the handouts, just listen to that. But we'll get to chapter 22 shortly. Uh, I'm going to read through this. And as we go through, be listening, because we're going to go through the observation and the interpretation again of this text. I'm going to break this up into three parts. So chapter 21, verse 10, through chapter 22, verse 5, where we hear of David, who's the protector of the flock. And then we're going to read chapter 22, verses 6 through 19, and we learn of Saul and Doeg, who are these roaring lions who act against Yahweh and his people. And then back to chapter 22, verses 20 to 23, that's what we'll end with. And it returns to David, the idea, the idea of David as the protector of the flock. So, 1 Samuel 21, starting in verse 10. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? Chapter 22. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go to the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. Now Saul heard that David was discovered, and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with spear in his hand, and all his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds, that all of you have conspired against me? 
No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. Then Doeg the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul, said, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. And he inquired of Yahweh for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech, the priest, the son of Ahitub, in his father's house, and the priests who were at Nob. And all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Here now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him, so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as at this day? Then Ahimelech answered the king, And who among all your servants is so faithful as David? Who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time that I have inquired of God for him? No. Let the king not impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father. For your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. And the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of Yahweh, because their hand also is with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of Yahweh. Then the king said to Doeg, You turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests, and he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword, both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep, he put to the sword. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David and Saul, or sorry, told David that Saul had killed the priests of Yahweh. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me, do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safe keeping. <clears throat> all right. So the end of chapter 21 is our setup, and as Brian covered two weeks ago, David fled from Saul to Nob and inquired of Ahimelech the priest. And he deceives Ahimelech by telling him that he's on a secret errand from the king. And then he secures provisions for his men and that sword for himself. But there was a certain servant of Saul who was also at Nob with the priests. Who was that? Doeg the Edomite. Now, what was his relationship to Saul? What did we hear? He was the chief herdsman. Okay, so a couple questions. As king of Israel, would we expect Saul to have many flocks and herds? Yes, we would. He's the king, very likely the richest man in all the land. So we would expect then the chief herdsman, the man whose task it was to watch over much of Saul's wealth, would we expect him to be a prominent man in Saul's court? Probably. I mean, if he's the guy with the keys to the pen, he's, he's got the purse strings in his hand because he watches over so much of Saul's wealth, then yes, he's probably close to Saul's side. But think back to an event described not too many chapters ago in 1 Samuel, when the word of the Lord came to Samuel, and he went and commanded Saul to go and strike down the Amalekites because, quote, of all they had done to Israel as Yahweh's people fled from Egypt. Do you remember what Samuel told Saul to do? Yep. Kill everything. Total and utter destruction. Thank you. So strike the Amalekites and devote to destruction all that they have. 
Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. And Saul has the kingdom torn from his hands because he doesn't do two things. Who and what does he spare? Yes. So he spares King Agag, and he spares the best of all the flocks and the herds and the donkeys and the camels. So he doesn't kill King Agag, and Samuel then has to hack the king to pieces. And he spared the best of the sheep and the oxen and the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good. We're told he spared the very best of the livestock. It says, quote, he would not utterly destroy them. So when Samuel arrives on the scene, Saul says to him, look, I've done everything that you've said. And what was Samuel's response? <laughs> Essentially, right? Yeah, not yet. He's like, oh, yeah, you did everything? Then why do I hear sheep in the background here? And two times Saul says this, kind of like Adam and Eve, he points the finger at other people. He says, well, the people of Israel spared the best of the sheep and oxen as a sacrifice to Yahweh. And when Saul tries to deceive Samuel further in that episode, Samuel cuts off Saul mid-sentence. He finishes Saul's task by cutting off Agag piece by piece. And then he pronounces a message of judgment that cuts off the kingdom from Saul. But... While the text tells us that Agag was devoted to destruction and cut to pieces, what isn't destroyed in that passage? What does the text not include? All the animals, all the flocks, the herds, the very best. So by not including the animals in the summary and then quickly moving to another part of the story, the author is letting us know that, in fact, Saul kept them. He didn't devote them to destruction. He didn't offer them up in sacrifice, even as he lied to Samuel or tried to blame the people. So these animals were supposed to be part of that total destruction, a sacrifice pleasing to Yahweh. And now they personally enrich the king who's been cast down. And now we're told of somebody being in charge of that ill-gotten gain. Who is it? Doeg. He's the one responsible for seeing that stuff, a lot of Saul's wealth that was gotten in a way that Saul shouldn't have gotten it. So he is firmly aligned with Saul. The author wants you to see Doeg is firmly in Saul's court, firmly in his corner, and he will do what the king, the deposed, disgraced king, asks him to do. So going back to chapter 21, verse 10 now, we see David as the protector of God's people, the protector of the flock. So Yahweh, Yahweh's anointed. Yahweh's anointed is on the run. And in verse 10 of chapter 21, we're told he goes somewhere. Brian covered this a couple weeks ago. You just heard it. Where did he go? He goes to Achish, who was king of Gath. So is Gath in Israel, or is it in foreign territory? Yes, in Philistine. It's Canaanite territory. It's out of Saul's reach. And how are we told David behaves in Gath? Like a madman. He disguises himself. So Brian and Justice have touched on this the last couple of weeks. But the author of 1 Samuel is giving us a clear contrast between the two kings, between Saul and David. And... One man here is only pretending to be mad and insane, and another truly is becoming more and more mad as he hates Yahweh and Yahweh's anointed. So we've, we've seen and heard about Saul. What do we know about him and his mental state right now? Did Yahweh send something to him? An evil spirit to torment him intermittently, yes. So, I mean, the, the guy truly is going... Slightly insane. What else? How, how would you describe his behavior? Has it been stable and level-headed? 
paranoid. He's tried to take out his son a couple of times, and there's still spear holes in the wall in the king's banqueting hall. Right? He's, he's tried to take out friends and family who he believes are in cahoots with David to overthrow him and his kingdom. Truly, Saul is losing his mind. And then the contrast couldn't be clearer. You have the deposed, disgraced king who's going insane, and the Lord's anointed, the one who is ascending to the throne, who's only pretending to be insane. So David then flees from Gath to the cave of Adullam. Adullam, sorry, Adullam. The word cave here in the Hebrew can mean a geographical formation, but commentators also note that it can mean a fortress. And Adullam means hiding place or refuge. So David is able to flee to this cave that is a fortress. It's a protection, and it provides him with refuge. He's safe for now. And who are we told in verse 1 of chapter 22 that joins him? There's two different groups. Who comes to him? Okay, so you've got the people. All the people who are bitter in soul, who are dejected, who are in debt. Yeah, his brothers and his father's house. So he's got his family coming to him, as well as all of those that are on the outside. So first, let's look at his brothers and all his father's house. Why do you think, we're not told a specific reason, it's not explicit, but why do you think his brothers and all his father's house come down to him when they find out where he is? Yeah, they, by blood, they are now enemies of the state. So if Saul is willing to take out his own son, the one who should be ascending the throne behind him for conspiring with David, do you think his family is safe? I mean, surely Saul's counting them as part of his conspirators, right? So we can reasonably conclude that they're going to be safe, to be kept safe from this mad, sinful king. But now look at everybody else. So we're told that everyone who is in distress, everyone who is in debt, and everyone who was in bitter and soul went down to him. You see, the Lord is drawing to his anointed all of the downtrodden and disadvantaged. And as we'll see, those flocking to David are people who have been oppressed in Saul's kingdom. We'll tease that out here in just a little bit. So finally, we're told that the men who came to him numbered around 400. And there's two points I want to draw on that. So even as David is put to flight, the Lord is preserving a remnant who will remain faithful to the true king. So we're going to hear about Saul and what he's done for his court and his people. But Yahweh always preserves a remnant of his people. Even when things look awful, even when his anointed is put on the run, he's always preserving a remnant who will be faithful and not bow the knee to the illegitimate king. But does this sound like a ragtag bunch of guys? Does it sound like good company? Not really. I mean, they're the least likely to be in the king's ranks, leading his armies, doing mighty works. And yet, from this same group come David's mighty men from 2 Samuel 23. It's from this group that fled to him toward the beginning that we see some of this in 2 Samuel 23. And so Yahweh is taking the despised and lowly of the kingdom and elevating them to positions of prominence and valor when they turn to his anointed king. Do you see that? All right. In verse 3, we're told David then flees to Mizpah of Moab. And David pleads with this king of a foreign land to safeguard his father and his mother and family in his kingdom. Again, we're not told why Moab would agree to this. Uh, It could be that he's heard the same songs that the king of Gath heard, that David has struck down his ten thousands in comparison to Saul. And it could be that he sees David as the ascendant king, so he's making a political alliance of sorts. But whatever the reason, 
he takes David's family in. He takes in his mother and his father, and they are now safe. So David, knowing that his family is safely out of Saul's reach, returns to his stronghold. That is, until the prophet Gad, whose name translates to fortune or success, tells him to leave the cave of Adullam and return to the land of Judah. So David then goes and camps in the forest of Hereth in Judah. So now let's look at verses uh, 6 through 19, where we get a little bit more about Saul and Doeg. So in verse 6, this is where the story takes a turn. Saul's spies, which undoubtedly are throughout the land, apparently have been doing their job. Uh, So as long as David was in Gath or Adullam or Moab, did Saul know his whereabouts? Did Saul know where he was or what was going on? The text doesn't say, right? So we we can conclude, no, Saul doesn't know. But when does Saul find out? When does Saul discover David? Yeah, when he comes back to Judah, that's when Saul finds out. So again, we can conclude that even though Saul is determined to destroy the Lord's anointed king, his reach has finite bounds. He can't go into these other countries and grab David's family or pursue David even and his men into these other territories. It's only when David with his men returns to the land of Judah that then Saul knows what's going on. So there's a place and a country where Saul can't extend his reach. But once David does return to the land of Israel and he's discovered, it sets Saul off. So let's unpack the scene here that the author writes for us. Um, What is Saul's posture? In verse 6 here, what are we told is Saul's posture? He's sitting down, once again, sitting where? Under a tree on the heights. So he's on the heights, sitting down as a king under the tree. And what's in his hand? Okay. So with what has happened in the previous chapters, is Saul getting ready to rave with a spear in hand a good omen or not? It's not. You can anticipate something bad happening here. Saul's on the prowl and he wants blood. And whom does he address? So a servant. So this would be his counsel or his inner circle. And I'm going to read uh, verses 7 through 9 again here. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin. Will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds that all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my... Uh, when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse, none of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. And then Doeg answered, who, st- uh, who stood by the servants of Saul, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. Now, where have we heard these words before? That the king would give to his cronies fields and vineyards and take the people's sons and make them servants of these commanders? Have we heard that before? Yeah, we heard it from Samuel. When the people demanded a king, Yahweh sternly warned Samuel to tell them, this is what it's going to be like. He's going to take the best of your fields and lands. He's going to take your sons and daughters and make them his servants. He's going to turn them over to his cronies to make them their servants. And so when we read this, we're seeing that that's exactly what Saul has done, just as Samuel prophesied and as Yahweh said. But I think this also helps explain those who were in distress and debt and who were bitter in soul. At least some of these men would have been chewed up and spat out by Saul's kingdom. 
They've had their sons and daughters taken from them. They've had their lands and fields taken from them and given to those in Saul's inner court. And so you can see why they're bitter, why they've turned against Saul. All the people, we're told, wanted a king, but now we see there are some haves and some have-nots, and the have-nots are fleeing to David because of how they've been mistreated by the king of the land. So Saul's reminding his inner circle here, those who have aligned with him, I've given you all these things, and you can't repay me even with the kindness of informing me when my sworn enemy, who's going to take the kingdom from me, and by the way, if he does that, he's going to take all these things from you, is on the move. And that's when Doeg the Edomite steps forward. This is a shady, shady character, and it's going to get worse. So there's two more things we need to know about Doeg. First, what do we know about Doeg's ethnicity? Is he an Israelite? No. So he's an Edomite. We're told that a couple of times. Do you know or recall from whom the Edomites descended? Esau, yes. So we know, if we know Genesis, that from their birth... Jacob and Esau, Israel and Esau, were always striving against one another, always going back and forth. And the author here wants his hearers to recall that from the time Israel and Esau were in the womb, they wrestled against one another. And later hearers would also recall the judgment that was pronounced on Edom in the book of Obadiah. So Edom's sin against Israel, against God's people, had been building over the years. And finally, this pronouncement of judgment from Obadiah the prophet comes because as the Babylonians were leading Israel captive, the Edomites were cheering them on, egging on the Babylonians and rubbing it in Israel's face, mocking Israel as they went back into slavery. And there's also some irony in Doeg's name itself. Doeg's name literally means full of fear or one who acts with uneasiness. Do his actions in this text show fear or uneasiness of any sort? No, he just proudly boasts of what he knows and embellishes it with some lies and then swiftly executes judgment that he should not have done. So last week, Justice alluded to the fact that Doeg wasn't completely truthful in telling Saul all that he knew. So what does the text say that Doeg shared with Saul? There's three things that he says Ahimelech did for David. What are they? He inquired of the Lord. Okay, what else? He saw him come from Nob. So that would be like a fourth thing. I've got two other things in mind. But yes. Gave him provisions and a sword. Yes. So he inquired of Yahweh for him. He gave him provisions for him and his men. And he gave him a sword. So let's go through this. Did he actually give uh, David the sword of Goliath? Yeah, he did. Did he give him provisions? He did. He gave him the bread of the presence. Did he inquire, does the text say in the previous chapter that Ahimelech actually inquired of Yahweh for David? It does not. It does not. Now, he could have inferred that because David had a private conversation with Ahimelech, but we're not told that actually happened. So the text doesn't say that Ahimelech actually inquired of Yahweh for David. But Doeg doesn't just want to insinuate that Ahimelech is supporting David with food and a weapon. He also falsely invokes Yahweh's name. He says, by the Lord, this happened. Ahimelech inquired of Yahweh. So he falsely bears witness about Yahweh to bring a near certain death sentence down on Ahimelech and his house. So Doeg, this man who oversees property that was stolen from Yahweh, also bears false witness by invoking Yahweh's name about Ahimelech. It's crazy. Said another way, 
Doeg is a liar and a thief who betrayed the Lord's anointed after being in the presence of the priests. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound like anybody we know maybe a few hundred years later? Maybe Judas? So Saul summons Ahimelech after hearing this report from Doeg. And what does Saul call him? He's called somebody's son. The son of Ahitub. All right, so this is the second time after Saul summons Ahimelech that that phrase, son of Ahitub, is used. Why do you think that that's repeated? Why do you think the author keeps driving that point home? Whose son is Ahitub? If we go up the genealogy. Eli, yes. This is Eli's line, and the author wants you to see clearly judgment is going to fall on Eli's house. There's no mistaking who's going to be taken out here. So Ahimelech appears before Saul, and Saul accuses him before his whole court, all of these Benjaminites, of the things that Doeg had shared. So what motive does Saul ascribe to David, though? So he says, you did this, Ahimelech, but he also ascribes some motive to David in all of this. Did you read that? Did you catch that? What did he think David was doing? So Ahimelech is supporting David, but it's because David is going to do something or David is doing something. Conspiring against him, lying in wait, just seeking his opportunity to strike Saul when the moment is right. Lying in wait against Saul? I mean, that's kind of crazy, isn't it? Have we been given any indication in the text that David is seeking for that opportunity or he is, in fact, lying in wait to strike down the king? Any indication at all that that's the case? No, not at all. Quite the opposite, in fact. And David has remained faithful to the king in spite of all of this. And yet it's Saul who has lied in wait for David. It's Saul who keeps trying to kill him and has tried on a couple of occasions. Saul's rage blinds him to the reality of David's fidelity. And Ahimelech reminds him of this fact. He says, who among your servants is as faithful as David? Who is the king's son-in-law? He's united himself to your house. Who's captain over your bodyguard? He's responsible for the people who oversee your safety and well-being, your very life. It's like, this guy is not lying in wait for you. But Ahimelech adds one other detail. What is it? He asks a question. He says, is today the first time I've inquired of David? And the answer is no, he hasn't. He's he's done this before. So again, there were three charges that Saul leveled against Ahimelech. The provisions, the sword, and inquiring of Yahweh on David's behalf. Does Ahimelech address the charges of the provisions and the weapons? Or the weapon? No, he doesn't. I mean, he did do those things, and he knows how that's going to look, right? That kind of implicates him in this. But he does address that last charge, saying, it's not like I haven't inquired of David before, or inquired of Yahweh on David's behalf before. As far as I know, king, nothing's changed, so I wouldn't have thought anything was out of the ordinary. So please don't impute to me any wrongdoing or any wrongdoing to my family. But again, Saul's already worked up. He's lost his mind. He's in a rage. His sin is blinding him. And he orders the death of Ahimelech in all his father's house. So who does Saul turn to first? He turns to his guard. And we've already been told what tribe they're from. Did you catch that? Benjamin, yeah. 
So the Benjaminites are around him. He turns to part of the family of God and says, strike down the priests. Do they execute the death sentence? No. They may be in Saul's inner court, and they may have personally benefited from him, but they know not to strike down the priests of the Most High. So Saul then turns to this Edomite who strikes down the priests without hesitation. And it's important to note a couple of things here. One, Yahweh did ordain the destruction of Eli's unfaithful priestly line. And he did ordain for Saul to become king. And Yahweh did send that evil spirit that we talked about earlier to torment Saul intermittently. But did Yahweh make Saul sin? Did Yahweh make Saul give the death sentence and have Doeg uh, carry it out? No, he didn't. He's given Saul over to his paranoid madness and his sinful desire to hold on to the kingdom, whatever the cost. And so Saul now freely opposes Yahweh and Yahweh's kingdom and everything that Yahweh stands for. And in this role, it is right to say that Saul has become a type of antichrist. He's against the Lord's anointed. And Dale Ralph Davis in his commentary puts it this way. God is not the author of evil. Place the blame where it belongs, on this renegade Edomite and on the Antichrist who commands him. They dared to destroy the priest of Yahweh. It was a horrid wickedness for which Saul and Doeg are fully responsible. It is a clear fulfillment of the word Yahweh had spoken. If we put those two together, one truth becomes clear. Even in opposing God's kingdom, God's enemies only bring to pass God's word. So Doeg and Saul are completely responsible for their own behavior. But even in their railing against Yahweh and his anointed, they only bring about Yahweh's spoken word. They bring about Yahweh's revealed will. So there's one last bit of irony here in the passage. Um, earlier we discussed that the Lord had commanded Saul to, uh, what he had commanded Saul to do to the Amalekites as they opposed Israel. Do you recall what that was? We already said it once. What was Saul supposed to do to the Amalekites? Wipe them out totally, completely, yes. So again, the quote is, to devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Do we hear that same language here in the text? It's pretty much the same language word for word. So here is the tragic irony. Saul didn't mete out the perfect full justice of Yahweh on a people who were opposed to him and his kingdom and his people. But now Saul has no qualms about exercising the exact same punishment on those who would dare to oppose him and his kingdom. Do you see how off-kilter, how opposed that is to Yahweh and his purposes? Saul's gone in completely the opposite direction. Terrible, terrible, tragic irony. So this brings us to the last part of our passage this morning. Just a small passage, verses 20 through 23. And I have just a few things to highlight here. So there's only one man, Abiathar, who escapes just as the man of God foretold in chapter 2. He flees to the right person, the Lord's anointed king, and the only one who can do something about this tragedy. And then David confesses he knew that this was going to happen. He confesses to Abiathar that his father would... I'm sorry. David confesses that he knew his coming to Abiathar's father would occasion the death of the whole house, the whole priestly line. So he welcomes Abiathar to his side, noting, the one who seeks your life seeks mine, and Abiathar, you will be kept safe with me. Which, again, reinforces David's role as the shepherd and defender of Yahweh's people. 
those of Yahweh's people who flee to him, he will guard and keep safe. Contrast that with Saul. This contrast just keeps coming back. Saul's depicted as a roaring lion seeking whom he might devour so that he can maintain his hold on the kingdom, even though he knows his time is coming to an end. So as we've unpacked all of those details, did any of those elements sound familiar to you in the gospel story, that story writ large? I hope it did, and let's walk through these uh, for just a moment, because this story, 1 Samuel 22, is just one small story that's repeated many times and in many different ways throughout Scripture, but points to that much larger story of Yahweh and what he's doing with his kingdom and his people. And we're presented with a clear contrast between the Lord's anointed, the Lord's Christ, and Antichrist. So here we see Saul, a man ordained by Yahweh as prince over his people. He looks the part. He's handsome and taller from the shoulders on up. He he looks the part, straight out of central casting. And he takes to himself, though, that which only belongs to Yahweh in that sacrifice, those animals that he didn't put to death. And then he tries to deceive in an attempt to maintain his hold on his kingdom. And when it's torn from his hands, he's cast down from his position of authority and told there would come another to rule Yahweh's people, a man after God's own heart. And so in the intervening time, he bribes and rewards and tries to seduce those who align with him and his kingdom. And at the same time, he's blinded by his hatred of David and is opposed to Yahweh and his kingdom. Now take that and compare it to what we know to be true about Lucifer. So that son of the morning, the most beautifully created of all the heavenly host, until he purposed to take the throne from Yahweh and ascend on high, to take that which only belongs to Yahweh himself. And then Yahweh cut him off and cast him down. And in Satan's hatred of Yahweh and his opposition to Yahweh's kingdom, he deceived the man of God. And he set himself up as the ruler of this world, even though he knew his time was short. He knows his time is short. And now he continues to deceive and bribe and seduce those who align themselves with him and his kingdom, at the same time raging against Yahweh and seeking to destroy all those aligned with Yahweh's anointed king. Do you hear the similarities in that? The author could not have known that that's where this was going. But as we look back on the shadows of the Old Testament in the light of the New, we can see clearly what's going on here. And yet, our enemy's time here is short and his judgment is sure. Yahweh has promised that it would happen. He's already declared it, just like he declared judgment on Eli's house and just like he has declared judgment on Saul. And our Lord Jesus Christ is that faithful and true king of Israel. He is our rock and our fortress in whom we take refuge. And all those who flee to him, his brothers and sisters, those who are in distress, those who see themselves as debtors in the eyes of God, and those bitter in soul over their sin and rebellion and former alliance with the ruler of this world, he will by no means cast out. We are safe with him. And his words to us are the same as David's words to Ahitub. He who seeks my life seeks your life, and with me you will be safe. Now, I referenced Paul Harvey earlier. I don't know if the Apostle John had a comfort, comforting, velvety, smooth-like voice, but he has painted a masterful picture of exactly what this, is, uh, what this looks like in bright, vivid colors in his revelation of our Lord Jesus. So bear with me. I want to read chapter 12 to you. 
And I want you to just listen for the similarities. Everything that we just described, the comparison and contrasting that we did, uh, first between Saul and David, and then the comparison between Satan and his antichrist, Saul. I don't think it's wrong to say that. Here, on a bigger, grander scale, in Revelation 12. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured out water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Brothers and sisters, our mother, the church, has given birth to that promised child, the Lord's anointed king, the Lord Jesus. And even though the dragon did lie in wait to devour him, he could not prevent the rightful king of heaven and earth from ascending to his throne. The dragon, the accuser, of those aligned with Yahweh's anointed, has now been thrown down to earth. And woe to those who dwell on the earth, for he is full of wrath and madness. But if our faith is in Christ, we're not earth dwellers. Our home is a heavenly one because we are firmly united to Christ, and that is from where he reigns. And he has placed our mother, the church, with our heavenly father in that faraway country, where the dragon cannot extend his reach and do them harm. So even though Satan may turn his attention to us in the here and now to do us harm, we operate from a place of refuge and strength in this wilderness. The word of God already has declared judgment on our enemy and on his. The king's family, our family, is firmly safe in God's grasp. And we already have conquered the dragon through the blood of the lamb and through the testimony of his Christ. And we are seated with him in this very moment. Right now, you and I are seated with him in the heavenly places so that he cannot touch us. So may we stand firm then in this evil day, 
trusting in Yahweh's promised deliverance. He's making all things new, and he will return. And brothers and sisters, we can trust in that because that, that is the rest of the story. Let's pray. Most merciful Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for taking my weak words and using them to pro- pronounce your truth. May your spirit take your word and apply it to all of our hearts. And may it have the effect that you intend for each one of us. Humble us, break us, encourage us, and strengthen us. Help us to see you as our stronghold and our refuge. Help us to be encouraged that you already know the beginning of the story from the end, and you have firmly fixed all things. And may we act out of that confidence, not in ourselves, but may we act out of that confidence in you and what you have accomplished for us. Please grant us your peace, we pray, as we go from here to worship with your people. Amen. All right, do you have any questions for me? All right, thank you very much. Enjoy your Lord's Day.